Good evening, everybody, and welcome. It's an honor and a privilege to be presenting to you our speaker, Professor Yael Zerubavel. Uh, professor Zerubavel is a professor of Jewish studies and history, and until her very recent retirement from the post, also the founding director of the Bildner Center for the Study of Jewish Life at Rutgers University. Under this in this capacity, she has taken a leading role in building one of the main powerhouses of Jewish studies in the United States. In addition to building and developing the center, she has also helped turn Rutgers' divergent offerings of Jewish studies into a full-blown department and built an impressive and influential outreach program for both the center and the department. But all of this is just a backdrop to her formidable, groundbreaking and innovative scholarship. Professor Zubravel has been a pioneer of the study of Israeli culture, identity, and politics. Her previous works, such as her highly acclaimed book, Recovered Roots, Collective Memory and the Making of Israeli National Tradition, charted a new path in the study of Israeli nationalism. Professor Zubravel has always presented a unique combination of emphatic attentiveness and uh, critical gaze and analysis of aspects of Israeli culture and identity that others simply either have taken for granted or failed to see altogether. She has thus helped shed a new penetrating light on Israel and its place in the Middle East. More specifically, we are here to celebrate the publication of her new book, Desert in the Promised Land. In this book, Professor Zerbavel tells the story of, uh, or history, of the desert in the Zionist and Israeli imaginaries from the early 20th century to the present, shedding new light on romantic, mythical associations, settlement and security concerns, environmental sympathies, and the commodifying tourist gaze. Drawing on literary narratives, educational texts, newspaper articles, tourist material, films, popular songs, posters, photographs, and cartoons, Zerubavel reveals the complexities and contradictions that mark Israeli society's semiotics of space in relation to the Middle East and the central role of the besieged island trope in Israeli culture and politics. Before handing over the podium to Professor Zerubavel, I must uh, mention that the book is out, sold for 16 pounds uh, at the end of the, of the lecture, and you are encouraged to read it. Professor Zerubavel. Thank you very much, and I'm delighted to be here and to talk about the book when it's out. I was here several years ago, and it was still in its uh, seeds, um, and has developed much broader project than I had in mind in the beginning. The idea of studying the desert actually occurred to me while I was working, analyzing stories of Hebrew youth trekking to Masada, which was part of my earlier work. One of the case studies that I worked on was the rise of Masada as a national myth, and all the cases that I chose were complicated. But all of a sudden, I realized that there is a different angle. I mean, I read the descriptions of the Hebrew youth walking in the desert, and they were talking about the desert with pathos and enthusiasm. And I thought, hey, how does this go with the settlement narrative that looks at the desert from a very different angle? And I thought, nobody has studied that. That would be a really interesting topic to research. And so it took quite a few years, but I finally set on this work. 
And my book, Desert in the Promised Land, has grown to look both at the conception of the desert as a symbolic landscape, and then studying the actual desert, the Negev part of the Israeli territory, and how different approaches to the desert played out in different discourses. But the very choice of focusing on the desert as a topic actually I deliberately decided to do something that goes against the grain of the Israeli cultural emphasis on the settlement. Um, Zionist ideology foregrounds the settlement. If you think about those who may know Hebrew or have seen the uh, Zionist historiography, the term Yishuv literally means settlement. And that was used as the name of the Jewish society of Palestine to refer to itself. What could better manifest the prominence of Yeshuv, of settlement as a concept, than the fact that this is how the society related to itself. But what really triggered me is to look at the desert settlement relationship, not from the perspective of the settlement, but the from the perspective of the desert, although within the Hebrew culture. So this is what I am equipped to do, and this is what I've done, which means that there are other alternative approaches, of course, to look at this uh, relationship. So the first part of the book deals with the formative years of the, of the Hebrew culture in the late Ottoman and mandatory Palestine, and the second part of the book looks at the developments after 48, the competing visions of the desert as constructed in the discourses and practices, a look at both levels, focusing on settlement and security, nature and environment, and tourism. And then I will end by saying how I think what I'm discussing within this framework also applies to Israel's conception of the place of Israel in the Middle East. Methodologically, as Professor Yadgar already mentioned, you know, I am very eclectic, or to say it more elegantly, I use the integrative approach, and I'm using all kinds of cultural materials that really relate to the topic, um, historical studies, educational narratives, literary works, newspaper articles, oral histories, tourist publicity, painting, posters, cartoons, songs, and films. I'm really trying if there is something that illustrates well or I can show how the working, I'm using it. So it does not encompass, or I'm not trying to encompass all these things, but at least to show you how it plays in different levels of cultural production. So one of the uh, starting points um, is the way that time and and space are interwoven into the construction of the divergent interpretations of the symbolic meaning of the desert. That is to say, although when we say desert, the first thing that intuitively we think of is really space, and this is a geographical term, uh, what I tried to, to do is to see how it's used, how it emerges out of the different texts that I was studying. And what I realized there, it was not part of my own conception, it really came out of analyzing different texts, I realized that actually, even though it is a spatial 
um, category, it is interwoven into memory, collective memory. And so, on the one hand, the desert as a symbolic landscape is associated with a mythical space that relates to Jews' mythical origins and ancient identities going back to biblical exodus. The desert and to other texts, but you know, it's really the biblical exodus, I think, that is playing the, the most powerful role there. The desert provided a symbolic bridge to the biblical past. Zionist settlers, when they came, they felt as if if you go to the desert, you know, there you really feel the spirit of antiquity, the ancient origins, and the Bedouin inhabitants of the desert are like the living representations of biblical forefathers that are the closest to the biblical forefathers. Now, this idea, we all know, are not, you know, just... Jewish ideas. I mean, they were shared by uh, Christian travelers to Palestine, by biblical scholars. I mean, that's really very well entrenched in the Western tradition. Uh, but in the Jewish culture or the Hebrew culture in, in Palestine, that created a very important streak. And out of that grew the desert, what I call in the book, the desert mystique. That is numerous artistic and popular expressions, songs and dances and artwork that articulate the romantic view of the desert. Motifs of camel caravans, shepherds with thirds in the desert landscape, images of women with pictures gathered around the well. I could give you a whole lecture just on that. So you will forgive me, I really decided to kind of paint the scope of the book and I'm not going to give you no tremendous amount of uh, examples because I want to give you at least some sense of what the book covers. But one thing that I would like to uh, mention is really an interesting phenomenon of what I call the Hebrew Bedouin identity. Now this form of identity is not an identity that people would go and you'd ask a person on the street what you are and he would say Hebrew uh, Bedouin. But it emerges in Hebrew literature, in different texts. And once he started to think, so, wow, that's interesting, that's interesting, started collecting it. And I wrote an article and then incorporated it into the, into the book. Here are two examples. On the left, you have Boris Schatz, who was the founder of the Bezalel School of the Art who used to walk in the streets of Jerusalem in the early 20th century, in the second uh, decade, walking like that, dressed like that. Of course, he also dressed in Western clothes. It's not like it was always like that. But he really liked to feel that he's part of the biblical period. And the other, per the other person is an interesting character who Hebrews his name, is, came from Poland, Hebrews his name to Pesach Bar Adon, that sounds biblical enough, um, and he went to study how to become a shepherd among Arab shepherds, Bedouin shepherds. And when he was there, he dressed like them, and then he wrote a book about his life among the, among the shepherds. So here are two different examples, and of course there's uh, much more uh, there. Uh, but this was, in my analysis, this was only temporary or transitional identity that helped the exilic Jews to become native Hebrews. So I kind of make the analogy to go to using crutches, you know, and then afterwards it disappeared. But not the romantic approach to the desert. Um, although the romantic approach was 
much more developed in the earlier decades of the 20th centuries, I claim that it's still a streak in Israeli culture. And even within the context of the conflict with the Palestinians, there is still the, the, the romantic view. So here is an example of greeting cards for a new, the new year from the kibbutzim. It's just one, you know, among many that I could choose, but I chose it because she is wearing the kafia, and I have a, I have a whole discussion of the kafia uh, as appropriated by uh, Jews, and you know, holding the lamb. By the way, I even have the not in the book, but you know, in my collection, autobiography that was published by Arik Sharon or a biography, not a biography of Sharon, where he's, you know, like a shepherd holding a lamb. So these themes are very much part of the idyllic or idealized Hebrew culture. The desert, though, is also associated in Hebrew culture with the Zionist decline narrative. And in fact, while I want to give you the general framework that both things play in the culture and they coexist, sometimes, you know, raising different connections, there is also a historical development where the Zionist settlement narrative kind of became stronger streak than the Romantic, although both of them still can be found in the culture. Um, in that context... The desert is associated with the regressive period of Jewish exile, meaning that the country, because of the Jews exiled from the land, became a desert. Now, when that was used by Jewish settlers who came to uh, Palestine, they did not mean to give a realistic description of the landscape. They saw that, you know, that it's not all desert. But symbolically, they related to it as a desert. And by the way, again, you can find parallels in travelers, uh, uh, Christian travelers in the 19th century. So the word that I'm using, for those who may know Hebrew, desert is midbar. Uh, midbar is sometimes in, in the Bible, in uh, uh, English translation of the Bible, is translated to wilderness. But I did not choose that because wilderness, at least to my mind, evokes also the notion of forests and wilderness that is just not part of the Middle East. It's hard to convey it there. So I chose to stick to the desert uh, as translation, and that's also the common uh, term that is used in modern Hebrew. Um, and sometimes it's used as wasteland, shmama, or the hyperbolic biblical expression midbar shmama which means desolate desert and I have lots of examples of European Jews coming to Palestine either as visitors or to settle in, in Palestine and the term is applied to a wide range of terrains with different physical attributes sand dunes barren mountains rocky hills swamps, all kinds of things that are obviously are not desert but it conveyed the the decay of the of the uh, landscape, and there are all kinds of uses that I show how the application of metaphors of illness or death that are applied to the to the landscape, and of course the settlement process, the Jewish settlement process, is then contextualized within that as a redemptive process. 
that would either cure the landscape or revive the landscape, and there are a lot of expressions of this sort. <coughs> now, one of the things that, again, I didn't think of, even though I'm a native Israeli, I did not really think of this as a theme, but it emerged out of the analysis of texts, is the use of the terms either oasis or island as metaphors to the Jewish settlements in Palestine. And again, the first time I saw it, I thought, hmm, interesting. Second time I thought, oh, very interesting. By the third time I decided I'm opening a file and I'm starting <laughs> collecting all the, all the examples that I, that I find. And so I want to give you just a sense of how it is used. And this is by the famous uh, Hebrew Zionist philosopher uh, and polemicist Ahad Am. Uh, who visited Palestine in 1891, and he writes with the tone of irony about how Jews come to, from Europe to visit the Holy Land and what they, how they experience the landscape. I quote directly. This Jew, the visitor, moves from one Mosheva colony to another, and at times those are separated by a journey of many hours, and fields and villages of non-Jews filled all that space. But he sees this in-between space as if it were an empty desert, devoid of human beings. And after the desert, the settlement appears, and he can breathe again the national Hebrew air. So there is the the settlement as an oasis or as, a, or as an island within the desert. The desert is the hostile alien power that resists the Jewish uh, settlement process and that typifies the rhetoric of war of the settlement narratives and I go into an analysis and examples of the kind of opposition and the use of war terms or struggle between the powers of the desert and the Jewish settlement. Part of what I want to show is this mythical image of the meeting of the founders of Tel Aviv. It was not even called Tel Aviv at this point. That was taken by the photographer Avram Soskin. Um, I'm the, not the only one who uses this uh, uh, photograph. It's a kind of an iconic photograph of the beginning of Tel Aviv, but what is so striking here is how it shows this small group of people of the founders surrounded by the sand. And that's exactly the notion of the island surrounded by the desert or by the sand. Now, of course, like everything, like narratives, you know, photographs are also selective because while this photograph shows it's only surrounded by sand and you can think that you're in the middle of the desert, it doesn't show Jaffa, which you know, such a you know, large and important town that most of the Jews came to Palestine through Jaffa and they lived in Jaffa. So and Tel Aviv in its beginning was a neighborhood of Jaffa. But that really, if I'm talking about the mythical origins out of the sand, you know, this is a, a great example of that. So the perception of the country as declining and part of a decline narrative, I just want to mention again, just to put it in a broader context, it's again not unique to Jews, although it has its own 
tilt or branch of uh, in Zionist rhetoric, but was shared by colonial powers in the Middle East. So if you see works about the British and the French colonial powers, they very much also talk about the decline from antiquity and their own efforts as a way of curing the, or reviving the landscape. Now, one of the other things that happens in terms of the... Oh, just before that, there is the, this photo that I forgot to show you. That When I, I talk about the war narrative in terms of the settlement, here is a poster you can see how it's influenced by the Soviet art that was very much influential in Israel um, in the late 40s and the 50s. And here it's come, so you see the image of the soldier and you see the workers next to it. And the idea is that you have the poster is mobilized for work. Now, you can also think about mobilized for labor, the party, but that's actually out of the office of la the labor office. So they really do mean here mobilized to work, and there are a lot of images like that in uh, the Hebrew culture of the period. Now, one of the elements of the antagonism or opposition between the desert and the settlement which is also has a broader Western context, is associating the settlement with modernity, with stability, and looking at the desert as feminized landscape, and I have a whole section about gender categories, and also as something that is about to give away that the power of the settlement will actually be there, you know, in terms of reviving the land. So this is a painting by a Zionist uh, painter in the 30s. The word that is there at the bottom is Eretz, which is shortened for Eretz Israel, land, the land of Israel. That was a Zionist nickname to the land of Israel or Palestine. You have the new buildings that became in Tel Aviv. This is an international style. Look at the straight lines, and I have a whole discussion of the straight line versus the round lines. You know of the of the oriental landscape and the camel that is almost difficult to see as they're there. So it's a layered landscape. And what's interesting about this painting is that the camel is transparent. Even the hill becomes transparent. And what is beyond that is the massivity of the a modern building that represents the Zionist settlement. I'm. Jumping ahead to after 48, and I'm not going, and once we've hit 48, what we have is actually the whole section of the Negev that become part of the, of the territory of Israel. And the Negev is the real desert. It's not a symbolic desert, but the physical desert. What is interesting, and I go in more detail, and I'm not going to go into detail about that because, you know, there are other things that I want to stress, but there's a whole chapter about the settlement of the desert. And it's in the 40s that there is an effort to quickly establish some settlements in the desert um, so that Israel can claim the Negev. And in 48, the Negev is disconnected for, you know, by the Egyptian forces. Eventually, the IDF, the Israeli army, manages to conquer the entire Negev, and the Negev is at the hands of Israel. 
דוד בן גוריון, או דייוויד בן גוריון, who is the Israeli Prime Minister, um, cares a lot about the Negev. And he continues the settlement ethos. And he calls young people to go to the, settle, to the desert, to settle the desert. And with the slogan, make the desert bloom, which they, this cartoon, of course, you know, is showing him trying to make the desert bloom. But it really did not work well in the sense that Israelis after the 1948-49 war did not really want to mobilize to another effort. And so the, the government decides later to almost ship, I would say, to send new immigrants from the Middle East and Northern Africa to the Negev. to build their small first transit camps and then settlements, agricultural settlements, actually to carry the mission to settle the desert. And in that way, you know, there's another cartoon of showing a North African Jew, I think North African, but could be from another place in the Middle East, holding the borderline on their shoulder. actually becoming organic wool. You know, that was another expression that was uh, used, having to carry out the settlement and security mission that Israelis were supposed to carry. Israel invests a lot of efforts and funds to bring water to the desert. And I won't give you the details, but there are and then experiments with different ways of raising agriculture, growing things in the desert. There is really a very diverse experience population and different kinds of experiments. It draws people, you know, the beginning, I said, you know, there were the veteran kibbutzim of what driven by the Labour Party. There were in other, um, the Labour Movement, there are afterwards the new immigrants. And then there are continuing all kinds of experiments because the desert attracts people who want to escape the cities, who are, you know, a little bit... New Age um, artists, I mean, so you have a very diverse and now religious population because the religious community, the Alta Orthodox, is growing to this extent that they look for space and so there are also settlements that develop there. But I will not go to, into details here. What I want to just mention as an important theme is that the desert moves, becomes a kind of a gray area that moves between frontier an interior frontier, and neglected periphery. And that brings us to the environmental discourse. Because what happens is that when the environmental movement emerges in Israel, it actually reverses symbolically the settlement discourse. In the settlement discourse, the settlement is the positive process and the desert is the negative power that just becomes a hinders the process the redemptive process in the environmental discourse it's the opposite you have to defend the desert you have to defend all these areas that are still open from the overly aggressive settlement drive now the desert is mostly the negative is mostly nature reserves and nature parks, and there are also military bases. And actually, the militarization of the desert grew after, after the Sinai was returned to Egypt, because Israel needed to move the air bases there. And there comes a funny change of the alliance between the settlement discourse, the security discourse, and the environmental discourse. 
whereas the environmental try to defend the, the, the desert from industrialization, from destroying the desert landscape by the chemical industry, for example, and other things, they also benefit. They recognize that the military, having so much territory taken by the military, helps keep the desert out of the settlement process. It's ambivalent, and it's really interesting to see the ambivalence of the environmental about this aspect uh, of that. There is another element that comes so in the terms of the environmental discourse part of it is the issue of the protecting the desert and bringing tourism into the mix because tourism is really favors the desert as a as a wild landscape or untamed landscape but also realizing that you know the still the settlement ethos is really important now, what happens there is that there, is, there are Bedouins who live in the desert. The Bedouins had been there before 48. During 48, many of the Bedouins left or were expelled by the Israeli gay forces, and there remained a very small community relatively to what it was, only about 11,000 Bedouins in the desert, who become Israeli citizens. The case of the Negev Bedouins is complicated and I think is really a sad chapter in terms of Israeli history and Israeli society. The government first uses the policy of containment by moving them, most of them, not all of them, moving most of those Bedouins who remained in the desert to an area near Beersheba, this is called the Sayag, and they have to live in that contained area. In 1966, the military regime is uh, cancelled, the military administration over Arab Israeli Arab citizens, and they are free to go. But they want to go and to settle back in areas that they had before. And there begins a process that is still going on in the Negev, that the Bedouins don't have enough registration. You know, they don't have formal, you know, for the Bedouins, the classic way was to avoid the Ottoman administration and not to register. And there is a lack of paperwork that shows ownership over land. Israeli law continues the Ottoman law and the British law and requires full records of ownership in order to claim ownership. The government policy is, or has been actually, to um, build seven towns in the desert that are Bedouin towns with the idea that the Bedouins would do away with their claims to the land and in return they will get a housing in these houses. Now, it's been a long process and about half of the Bedouin population today lives in the built towns. The beginning was disaster. Some of the towns are actually really more flourishing, are doing better. But the Bedouin society, by and large, is at the bottom of Israeli society in terms of its standards of living. And the worst is the half of the Bedouins of the Negev who refuse to give up their land claims and live in what is called unrecognized villages, 
which are spontaneous villages that they build in the in land and and are not recognized as uh, legal settlements which means that they don't really get they had to fight actually the the supreme court the israel supreme court helped force the government to provide minimal services even though these are not legal settlements like health and schooling but it's still really a worse situation i deal with it in much more detail in the book um, i want to go on but i just want to say that the situation is still really one of a critical situation there are israeli activists and others foreign NGOs who try to support the Bedouins in their struggle but Israel's uh, government demolishes structures that are recognized as illegal or they declare as a, see the Bedouins as trespassers and in fact they call the Hebrew term for the Bedouins was pzura which literally means dispersion but the irony is that was a term that was later applied not later vis-a-vis the bedouins but that was in modern hebrew applied to jewish diaspora and that means that by using it to the bedouins it's as if they're diaspora in the land that they consider home which is of course the most ironic uh, use of the term and they have really objected to it when i interviewed people and you know did field work in the desert i heard time and again that people in the desert say that this is a ticking bomb that you know this is a intifada you know that would be the next intifada and the problems with that what well, i want to end with a discussion okay i talked about the island Uh, that settlement versus the island this is a photo that i took of mitzperamon uh, which is near the crater and really shows this conception of the desert surrounding the the israeli town but i want to show how this concept of island is playing i think much more broadly in israeli culture within the context of the conflict and helps explain another dimension and explain i don't mean justify but just to provide the perspective of how it's looked within the culture so here is a cartoon that was after 48 during 48 because of the arabs attack on israel there was a perception of israel as a besieged island that one could understand because it was attacked and here is the the baby in the crib and uh, wearing the palmach the military underground hat and surrounded by wolves that are about to devour it right so that is the the israeli jewish perception of the situation in the 1955 this poster which i thought was terrific you know it shows so well what i wanted to say here is the state of israel carved out of the environment it's like a floating unit without context but what is the context that is provided there is the image of the jordanian soldier from the east representing the arab powers that are about to attack israel from one side <laughs> one assumes that you know that represents all the brown around it but towards the worst the west there is technology and openness and being able to reach out inscription here in hebrew is growth versus besiegement 
So here you have encaptured so well the sense of an island, surrounded, besieged island, and the only opening is towards the west. So Israel is in the Middle East, but mentally and in terms of ability, it's floating, or as if it's a floating island towards the, um, Europe. Now, in the analysis of text, I found an island in the desert, which of course mixes metaphors, but you know, that's how it appears. Uh-huh. Uh, an island of the Sea of Arabs, which, you know, better fitted. Um, oasis I found more in the earlier part. I didn't find a lot, you know, in the after 48, uh, the reference to oasis. But uh, Ehud Barak famously said, and actually I have to thank you, Yaakov, for telling me about this, you know, the first time, the villa in the jungle referring to Israel as villa in the jungle, which got harsh criticism internally in Israel. You know, it wasn't that famous outside of Israel, you know, about using this orientalist uh, phrase um, and also mixing metaphors. So after 20 years, that's at the time of, of the Arab Spring and after the Arab Spring, Israeli talking, Israeli leaders talking about Israel as an island of stability, island of development, island of democracy, and people went back to the villa in the jungle. Barak said, okay, maybe I mixed my metaphors. So then he offered the replacement, Israel is an oasis in the desert. So here you are, and what I I'm ending up with is uh, images of the Israel surrounding itself with walls, putting up fences, kind of ent- becoming entrenched in the settlement narrative, which of course plays out in the occupied territories, but also in terms of turning itself into large big island, while it turning the Palestinians into small islands. So people usually talk about the narratives of victimhood that are playing on both sides, which, you know, is happening. And I'm saying it's also a situation of perceiving themselves as islands surrounded by hostile power, where the Palestinians feel that vis-a-vis Israel is a powerful state that controls them. And Israelis see themselves in an island, not vis-a-vis the Palestinians, but taking a larger perspective and seeing the Palestinians as part of the Arabs or the Muslims in the Middle East. And so the last image that I'll show, and with this I will end, when this cartoon came out in Haaretz, I thought, okay, as if I asked somebody to do a, you know, a cartoon or a visual image that will exactly convey what I wanted to say. Now, he talked about Tel Aviv, the people in Tel Aviv, you know, the most crowded part of Israel, and looking at themselves as if surrounded by, you know, emptiness, there's nothing about them, and they're surrounded by the walls, and then they're doing whatever they're doing. But I think that it's not only Tel Aviv. I think that this captures Israel in the Middle East. I'm open to questions. <laughs>